and welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is always more life. It's Father's Day today. I like to call it Fathering Presence Day. For the many people who were influential in our lives who may not have been our biological fathers to recognize that it is for many of us today when it's a Heavenly Father's Day, right? For many of us who um, are living in new seasons, it's so exciting to watch as I did this morning of some of you guys or dads just walking in this morning. It's, it's your first season of being a dad or it's new in the season of being a dad and you're figuring it out. And we think of grandparents and father figures that speak value into our lives. We recognize it's a day also filled with not just joy, but there's hurt for some, for broken relationships, for relationships that are unfulfilled and fathers who have not filled in the gap and not nurtured. So we pray God's blessing that where there is joy, it would be expanded and it would bring laughter. Where there is hurt, you would be met by God's Holy Spirit. Where there is pain, you would find comfort that only God can provide. And we acknowledge that this day. We also acknowledge that we are loved by our Heavenly Father that transcends all earthly joys and disappointments. I also want to recognize in this day that at 11 o'clock service, the UM Army will be commissioned going, uh, the June UM Army group. And you're going where, Jeremy? Lindale. You're not leading the group, are you? You're like, you're like going to be following somebody to Lindale. We don't have to come get you in San Antonio, right? Maybe. Maybe. That's why we're worried. So, but they'll be commissioned at the 11 o'clock service, but you don't have to wait until the 11 o'clock service to participate in supporting that amazing and beautiful work. And that can be done by picking up a, um, a wristband that is blue it's on the little podium as you walk out in a brown basket, and you would wear it through the week. I have Campbell Ropers is who I picked up, so what I'll do daily is I pray for Campbell Roper, who is actually going to be helping lead the worship, which is an amazing thing. Uh, one of you needs to come get this one. It's Susie Nauert. Um, this was the first one I picked up, but Susie's, actually the little clasp had broken off. So one of you needs to come get this after this worship and put it in your Bible or your purse if you don't want to wear it on your wrist, okay? The other reason one of you needs to come get this is Susie cooks, right? <laughs> Food is important. So, um, but thanks be to God. What, what an amazing moment to think about in the rhythm and history of this church that was birthed with a heart of mission that we have been involved so deeply this week in helping shape young hearts and lives for knowing who God's love is for them in Christ. We are commissioning those kids and adults as we move out in multi-generational teams going to Lindale and later in July, I'll be participating in the July UM Army as we learn that we are called to put faith, flesh on the faith and to be real. Thanks be God for that amazing and beautiful work and for the ways that you support that. As we continue in this series of withness, uh, it's a series based on a book by Leonard Sweet called Eleven. Uh, it's the 11 indispensable relationships you need. And so we sort of looked at that and crafted out and said, what, what would these relationships look like for us? For each characteristic in our walk with Christ, finding a biblical model of people you need with you in your walk. 
Last week, Bishop Jones launched us in understanding we first need to ground ourselves in the sense of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that we be grounded, that we know that we are justified by faith. A transcendent truth of God's redeeming love outside of anything we can do, but faith is the way by which we receive it. The old word is appropriate the faith, right? It's the way in which we receive what God has done on our behalf. Today we're launching into several weeks through the remainder of July to look specifically at those examples. Today we're going to look, um, I've chosen to, to launch off with David and Jonathan in recognizing that this is a, a, a relationship between men. And if there's anything that we don't do great it's, as guys is we don't do as good as the women do in relationship stuff, right? We just need to admit that fact. That we aren't naturally more done. Look, guys are built more for brain stuff, right? If something stupid happens with Troy Aikman stuff, hang on girls, hang on ladies. Guys are cognitive processors. We like to fix things. We don't like to talk about how you feel. We want to know how to fix it, right? We don't say, gosh, Gary, how did you feel about that Miss Feel Gold? Right? We say, did you see that? What was he thinking? Why didn't he go for it, you know? Whereas women, you guys, God built you with like a multi-processor brain that we men don't possess. You can sit around selecting clothes at a rack, having four conversations about three different people and how you felt about what everybody said, and then anticipating what the responses are. And guys, our elevator's door isn't even open yet. It's still waiting to go. We've heard the ding, and we're not, we're not quite engaged, right? Oftentimes, I say to my own wife, my elevator door's not open yet. Slow down, right? Let, let, me, let me get on. We're just different. So I want to say some things specifically to guys. I want us to say something specific to, to dads, but I think that there's also truth that extends beyond that. But I want you to listen as a dad today. And I want you to know that I think the most important thing that we need to remember as dads is we have this image of what we think we are. You know, for example, some of us dads think, you know, yeah, this is how we're viewed. You know, we're like Iron Man, right? Yeah. <laughs> We have this power that we're seeing, or, or we aspire to be that, or, or maybe it's just like we're the super cool suited up dude that's the superhero that shows up and saves the day like James Bond, 007. Do you know who most of us really are? Most of us are really like Jack Black and Nacho Libre. This is who we really are. That's who most of us really are. And just to show you the depth of my cultural awareness, sometimes it's okay to preach in your stretchy pants with your grown man, Chacho. In fact, some Sunday I want to do an entire sermon entirely with the voice of Nacho Libre. However, I don't think you can pray for the chips. And I'm concerned about your salvation and stuff. And people think I don't know a lot of stuff, but I do. And I'll stop there. So there's these constant images. So, so whether you're one of the guys or, or one of the gals, it doesn't really matter. We're going to look at this relationship between Jonathan and David, and it can transcend the gender stuff here. This is about how we journey together, the people that we need in our life and with us. Now, one of the things that's really amazing is that when, when Sweet sets up this whole scenario in Jonathan and David, he talks about how we struggle with three types of syndromes, not S-Y-N, but S-I-N, that affect our relationships. He talks about the ego system syndrome, where we look at friendships just to advance our status. In other words, a friend becomes a means to an end. Also, he says there's the no down elevator syndrome, that sin where we can't even express an emotional vulnerability to each other. 
And I will tell you, in 37 years of ministry, the most significant role in the life of the church for men is it breaks through that exterior shell where they've never touched their emotions or talked about their feelings or been vulnerable to anybody, and they finally get below that veneer and realize when men come together and can support one another, they begin to tap into the incredible treasure of God, God's design and desire that we journey and strengthen each other together. And then the third syndrome that um, is talked about is the what me sacrifice syndrome. That's that syndrome in the, the world where we really are, are asking about um, what's in it for me or I look more out for myself. And then Jonathan and David, we're going to find mutual examples of people who are looking out for the sake and concern of their friend more than themselves. So who is Jonathan? What I'm going to do now is the sermon pretty much is going to be setting this up, letting the text preach it, and a few insights out of the text, okay? Jonathan was the son of Saul. You may remember that David is anointed king by Samuel, who is the prophet. David's the youngest. He's anointed with oil. And I don't know about you, but just in the life of David, I'm the youngest of three children, right? And, and I always got the chores that weren't so great, if I'm anointed the next king of Israel, I'm probably going to be strutting that stuff around saying, hey, you look at the next king of Israel. I ain't taking that to trash no more. You know, but, but the text tells us in Samuel, David goes back to keeping the sheep. And what happens is Jonathan, the son of the first king of Israel, Saul, is like prince. So think Prince Jonathan. Think the shepherd king Saul, I mean the, the king Saul, and then you've got David who is the shepherd who's yet to ascend to the throne. You see this friendship between Jonathan who is the prince and David who's been anointed, it should have never worked. It should have never worked because Jonathan is going to voluntarily step aside of his role that would be to follow his father Saul as the second king of Israel. And we know the text, most of us. It's David who's going to be the second king of Israel. And how Jonathan do that is really kind of amazing. But the contrast is, is extraordinary. David's a shepherd. Jonathan is a prince. Jonathan has his armor. He's been trained in battle. David has a harp and a slingshot. Jonathan grew up in a palace. He was trained in the art of war. His uh, uncle Abner actually teaches him many things. David grows up in a little town of Bethlehem and is trained to keep sheep. Jonathan's the oldest son in line to inherit the throne. David is the youngest of eight boys, and yet he still is anointed by God to be the next king of Israel. Jonathan is of the tribe of Benjamin. David is a tribe of Judah. So despite all these differences, they find a way to make friendship with each other. So when we think about, well, it's just so difficult to be friends with people different than me, the biblical first example here is there was a ton of difference between these two. Any one of these would be a reason that they wouldn't have this friendship, and yet it is forged. We find it first happening in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Jonathan being described as the great warrior, and he's willing to face death no matter what. And that's a little bit different than his father Saul. Saul's kind of looking out for himself as king and always watching his back. But after David defeats Goliath, John, Jonathan is drawn to David. Kind of like he says, who is this guy? And what they do is they end up making a covenant with each other. And what, what Jonathan does is he takes off his armor and his robe and he gives it to David. He says, look, this is my covenant to you, brother. I'm going to be your brother. 
right? How do we, we say this today this way, like, like, like old G's up there, right? Sometimes we, we say things like, what's up my brother from another mother, right? We just, we sort of have that vernacular, right? But what's happening here is, is more, is deeper than that sort of jovial type thing. It's the kind of thing that really transcends that where I can look into Todd's eyes and realize he's not just a brother from another mother. You're my brother in Christ. And I know that if I need something, I can call upon Todd. And Todd knows that if he needs something, he can call upon me. Unless he wants a gimme putt from six feet and he's down by two strokes. You know that's still not happening, right? But there's a friendship that we share that transcends the differences in busyness. And I know that I can call upon him as a friend. So he says, basically, David, brother, I love you like I love myself. Now, what's really amazing about this is the Hebrew word for Aheb is the same love expressed in covenants throughout. So we looked at the Hebrew word for what is this kind of love between Jonathan and David look like? It's a covenant kind of love. It's a kind of, it's a kind of love. The best way I know to say is it's probably most represented in the, in, 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 in the military aspect that when you've got a battle buddy and you're in the throes of a war and a battle buddy, you're going to lay down your life for your brother and your brother's going to lay down your life for him. And, and it doesn't matter if one grew up Italian and one grew up Jewish. It doesn't matter that when you get in the battle and you've got a battle buddy, the, the survival of each other, that bond is greater than anything else. That's the kind of what mean of Aheb is. Aheb is that kind of covenant love. And so it's astounding that without even knowing what happened in the years to come, Jonathan, in this moment, he's, he's already willingly saying to David, look, man, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand you my robe. He, he's, he's passing off to David his rightful place. I don't know what was going through his mind other than he, he saw in David what was obviously God-breathed. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. Saul didn't like this. There's a lot of tension between Saul and David, and, and Saul literally tries to kill David. If you know the story, you know the story. Saul tries to kill David. We're about to pick up into the story in a minute. Um, it doesn't just happen once, but then Jonathan goes back and says, Dad, Dad, come on. John, David's a great guy. He tries to restore the relationship. Saul says, yeah, whatever, and tries to kill David again. Jonathan makes the second covenant attempt to say, look, David, I'm so sorry what my dad's doing, but... I, I really want to reach out. And now we're going to get to the text. And this text is, um, it is rather lengthy, so you're not going to have to stand the whole time. I do like you to respect the Word of God, but um, I'd also want you to, to tip over from, from passing out and locking your knees. So, uh, but I do want you to pay attention, because here's what's going to happen. Jonathan finally realizes that, that the hatred that his dad has is an unstoppable force. And so he's going to have to do something extraordinary to look out for his brother David. And so what they realize is that um, David is going to basically ask to flee to his hometown. Um, and there's this scenario they agree on. Remember, you don't have um, social media or anything like that. You've got, 
you got to figure out, how is David going to find out from Jonathan what he's going to do to save his life? So here's what I do. Jonathan's going to go out, and there's a place called the Stone of Azel, and David's going to hide behind the Stone of Azel. And then, then Jonathan's going to go out, and he's going to send, he's going to shoot some arrows, and then he's going to have his servant go out to look for it. And if he says, look, the arrows are on the side of you, bring them here, then that's the signal. Hey, look, the, the arrows are beside you, bring them here. If that's what he says to his servant, David knows Saul, uh, Saul's heart has been changed because Jonathan has been able to convince his dad, hey, David's not the bad guy. But, but if Jonathan says to this little servant boy who goes out to, the, to get the arrows, look, the arrows are beyond you, then, then that's the message that he's going to send to David that nobody else knows except the two of them that, look, I can't change my dad's heart. He's coming for you. You, you need to flee. So they make that agreement. So now we're going to unpack what happens when Jonathan puts everything on the line and he's going to look to say to his dad one last time, can you... Can you look past your hatred for my brother? If you want to follow along, the text is going to be on the screen. This will be 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 24 through 42. Hear now the word of the Lord. So David hid in the field, and, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. And that would be King Saul. And David's hiding in the field by the stone that is known as the Azale stone. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner, Abner is um, a cousin of, of, um, of Saul, who is the head of the army, uh, sits next to Saul, but David's place is empty. So you've got Abner, Jonathan, and Saul, but no David. And Saul said nothing for the day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he's unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again, and then Saul said to his son, Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Look what happens to Saul. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, his own son. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to kill him. And then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. And on that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had the small boy with him, and he said to the boy, Run and find the arrow as I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot, and an arrow fell beyond him. And when the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had followed, fallen, Jonathan called out after him, Isn't the arrow beyond you? 
And then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrows and returned to his master. Now the boy knew nothing about all of this, only Jonathan and David knew. And then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go, carry them back to town. And after the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone, which is the stone of Azel, and he bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. They kissed each other, they wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go, go in peace. We have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. May your spirit, O God, stand between me and your people so the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be shaped, formed, and molded into the good news of the gospel of Christ. In whose name we gather, in whose name we pray, and in whose name we will leave and seek to serve and follow Christ faithfully. And all of God's people said, Amen. So, my father was a missionary in Bolivia. My mom and dad were the missionary family at the English-speaking church in La Paz, and my dad taught English at the Instituto Americano in La Paz. And so for seven years, they were in La Paz, Bolivia, in Cochabamba, and Spanish was quite typical in our family. And there's a whole other story about how folded into our family is a man named Eugenio Poma, and he is an Amara Indian from the Altiplano of Bolivia. He became instrumental in our lives and our families, and, and part of the joy of my life was when I was in sixth grade. I was born after mother and dad finished their service. I was born in Dallas. I got to go back to South America. So in sixth grade, I'm beginning to realize what this culture is that has impacted our family so greatly. Sometimes you see those bright, colorful stoles that, that I wear and we have. So those are made by the, actually the United Methodist women in the Altiplano of Bolivia. It's from their sarape material. But it was always, you know, just sort of naive. I'm a sixth grader. I'm growing up in Wichita Falls. I'm sheltered. I don't know a whole lot about the world. So imagine my surprise when we get there and all of this family history is sunned up. And for the first time, I meet what is known as my padrino, my godfather, if you would. I am the padrino for Alex, his son, and Bishop Palma is my padrino. And I wasn't really prepared. No one told me how you're greeted in that culture. So at first goes, mucho gusto. Well, that's great. That's no problem. And then they went and kissed my cheeks. Holy cow, I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> if you've got a sixth grade boy and you're going to hug him and go, mucho gusto, you got to warn him. I mean, it was a huge shock, right? So when we read this text, this, this text about Jonathan and David and his departure, I go back in my mind that there was this passionate greeting that happened from Bishop Poma, Eugenio and Antonia, who had never, never met me, and I meet them, right, for the first time. It's such a, a joy filling their hearts. They've heard about it. They, they, they've heard stories, but now they meet me. And I, and I think of that same kind of greeting that happens in the culture in Bolivia that when you depart, it's the same thing. That when you greet each other, there's passion. When you leave, there's a sense of passion as well. It's the same pickup in the Jewish faith of shalom, a shalom of greeting, 
of Shaloma departure. And David and Jonathan journey together, and they have this deep friendship. But there comes a moment when their lives go separate ways. Dads, I want to say a word to you that what's really important is you need to be a father first, and then you need to be a friend to your children. Yes, your children need both a father and a friend, but you've got to be the dad first. Fathers, model your friendship for your family with your wives and friends because the kids are watching, dads. They need healthy male models. I have a conviction and belief that the number one deterioration within our culture is the deterioration within our family values and primarily the lack of the role of healthy males participating responsibly in their family responsibilities. I believe that that is the number one cause for the deterioration within our culture. So guys, if you're doing that, the Lord bless you. May God strengthen your heart to know how you need to be that model for your kids. But I want to push the envelope a little bit and and ask you three questions to help flesh this out to wrap up things here. Um, When we look at the relationship between Jonathan and David, um, our culture really seeks to say friendships can be in your benefit that can kind of advance you. I mean, come on, let's be honest. How many times have you heard the phrase, yeah, there's a lot of deals that have been done at the golf course or over dinner, right? All these things that friendships are simply parlating to achievements. Here's my first question for you, church. Regardless of where you are in the witness of your friendships, are you willing to sacrifice relationships for the sake of achievement or achievement for the sake of relationships? Are you willing to sacrifice relationships for the sake of achievement or achievement for the sake of relationships? Jonathan and David model for us a commitment of friendship that put things at risk because the friendship was more important. It was more important for Jonathan to honor his friendship with David than to take his place and his rightful place as prince. That's setting someone else's interest above your own. The second question I want to ask is for the relationship that I think helps in our marital relationship between husbands and wives. Ask, if you ask in your relationship where you can be a Jonathan to each other, and are there times in your relationships where you were? Folks, in your journey of marriage together, if you only let the external circumstances and the busyness of the calendar determine the time that you find together, you're going to be in trouble. But if you'll carve out that time to say, where can we be a Jonathan to each other? And where have those times been in your marriage? Your friendship will be what carries you through the days and undergirds the love you have for each other. Husband and wives, ask each other, where can I be a Jonathan to you? And thirdly, for all of us, as we think about this importance of who we travel with and the friendships, what's the highest compliment a friend could give to you? What's the highest compliment a friend could give to you? Now, if you're thinking, I didn't write all these down, look, you can go back, you can watch and rewatch and fast forward to the end and pick up these questions later. But think of the legacy that you're going to leave. What would be the highest compliment a friend could give to you? You were always there. When we did my dad's funeral, um, he would turn 95 this year on June the 14th. It's hard to miss because it's Flag Day. I always remember my dad's birthday. There was one person's comment that stood out to me the most, and he said, um, 
This guy came out and he said, uh, your dad saved my life. And nobody else knew it. He was like a vault and didn't tell others what I, what I had shared with him. And what he was expressing is that he knew he could go to a friend. He knew he had a friend in my father. That's the kind of legacy I want. It's a legacy I want for you all to think about. What kind of compliment would your friends give you? Jonathan laid aside the rightful place of the throne. David put his neck on the line. Jonathan set everything aside. And in God's design and desire for David's life is fulfilled in no small part because Jonathan was a true friend. We need two friends in this journey of life if we're going to make it. We need the strength and power of God, and we need true friends that will remind us when things are going good, they may not be as good as we think, and when they're going bad, they may not be as bad as we think. But friends, the only way we make it is we make it together. We journey together. The witness of a true friend, do you have one?